Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Five Days That Shape the UAE. James, you can turn your camera on now. So this talk is in collaboration with the Cultural Engagement Office at Student Life and is also a part of the Institute's 50th anniversary of the UAE series with more fascinating talks in the coming weeks. First, I'd like to introduce myself and my partner. My name is Nurbu Hamas. I'm an Emirati second year student at NYUAD studying history and political science with a minor in urbanization. And I'm also a member of the Sparat Cultural Ambassadorship Program, which aims to bring the UAE culture closer to the student body. So today, my partner and I, Nora, who will introduce herself now, will be the moderators of this event. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Nora Nazebi. I'm also an Emirati second year student at NYUAD. Um, I'm studying political science and maybe psychology, but um, I'm also a member of Ramsa and the UAE Majlis, uh, which are student bodies that aim to bring the NYU-AD community closer to the UAE through language and dialogue. Um, and I'm looking forward to our talk today, um, James. Thank you, Noah. And without further ado, I'm beyond thrilled to be introducing our speaker for this talk, James Langton. James was one of the launch editors of The National after a vibrant career in UK newspapers. He was a foreign correspondent in New York and moved to Abu Dhabi in 2008. Returning to the UK in 2018, he is still a contributor for The National. James Langton was part of the History Project at The National, producing a series of publications on various topics related to the history of the UAE, and he has been sharing his work with the NYUAB community and beyond through his lectures. But today, his talk will be, uh, will look at the five days leading to the formation of the UAE on December 2nd, 1971, using photographs and video to create a journalistic impression of that historic and exciting time. Thank you, James, so much for being with us today, and the floor is yours whenever you're ready. Well, thank you very much. And I just want to start off by saying that any glitches, failures, technical failures are all on me, probably. So um, I hope it goes smoothly, but um, uh, let's see what happens. Okay, thank you so much to the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for again giving me the opportunity to talk to you. And I'd like to start by saying uh, good evening or good afternoon or good morning, uh, depending on where you are. Um, I'm in the UK now where it's very damp and getting dark and cold. Um, and uh, the only thing I can say is tea time, and I, um, it, I have here my very own uh, Babazayed mug uh, to keep me refreshed during this talk. Um, uh, I wanted to start by giving a bit of background first, which will tell you about the origins of today's talk and how I came to be involved. Um, back in late 2007, I was hired to be one of the senior editors to launch The National, which was to be a new English language newspaper uh, published in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and I'm, I'm more than ashamed to say that I had never visited the UAE before then and that I really knew very little about the country or its history. And when I say very little, I really mean nothing at all. Um, so after the first chaos of launching the paper in April 2008, things settled down a bit. And by late November that year, we were able to come up for air and see that there was something called National Day that was just around the corner. Um, and that seemed to mean several days of holiday, which was great. Um, fireworks, even better. 
And we were told you had to go down to the Abedevi Corniche because it was absolute mayhem. And we also noticed uh, lots of colourful uh, illuminated signs along the big roads, some of which had the numbers three and eight, meaning 38. And at that point, we realised that in two years' time, the UAE would be 40 years old, and we should really start thinking about how we should mark this. It also seemed to be a good time to thoroughly educate ourselves about a new home and how it came to be. And that proved to be quite difficult. There was very little uh, to be found in print, books, that sort of thing, certainly in English, and great resources like the Arabian Gulf Digital Archive, which was created by the National Archives, didn't exist then. Uh, and in fact, the only thing we could do really was start trying to track down people, knocking on doors, making telephone calls, really what you would call proper journalism. Um, and I'm just going to slide here now, so you'll just have to excuse me. Um, There we go. So after starting in only 2009, by National Day, we were able to produce this magazine. You can see the front cover here, which was given away free with the paper uh, on, the day, on the day before National Day, December the 1st. And much of what I'm going to share with you today first appeared in this magazine. So I want first to properly acknowledge all those who worked on it. There were 32 people in all gave their time for this. Uh, a really extraordinary enterprise. And we wrote in our introduction to the magazine, we are a group of young and old, Emiratis, Arabs, and expatriates. This does not seem to be a place to single out individuals for credit. Like the rulers of 40 years ago, we have learned that the best is achieved in unity. So 10 years after this magazine was published, I'd like to give them the credit they deserve for this again. The magazine was called The First Day. This talk is called Five Days That Shaped the UAE. Uh, the reality, of course, that is that making the UAE took a lot longer than a day or even five days. So I'd like to start with a short, um, I promise it will be short, introduction. Many of you will know that the UAE was once known as the Trucial States, the rather odd name, but the truce being treaties enforced in the early 19th century by the British, uh, which gave them almost complete control of the external relations of those seven emirates and allowed them to interfere if there was something or someone they didn't like. By the early 1960s, the discovery of oil in both Abu Dhabi and Dubai was transforming the picture. Britain, by then, was no longer a colonial power, and in 1968, the British government announced it was going to pull back its military forces east of Suez, meaning the Suez Canal, and also that its bases in Aden uh, would, would be closed, and the fighter aircraft, RAF base in Sharjah, and the Navy ships in the Arabian Gulf would all go. And that was important because under the treaties with the Trucial States, Britain was obliged to protect them from potentially hostile powers. So with Britain effectively abandoning its old role in the Gulf, these seven emirates would now have to survive on their own. Uh, actually, I think there's evidence that the treaties between Britain and the Trucial States were past their sell-by date even before 1968. Sheikh Zayed became ruler of Abu Dhabi in the summer of 1966. And we know from the British records that one of the first things he asked them for was an Arabic copy of the text of all those treaties that bound him to London. So I, I think uh, Sheikh Zayed could see what was coming even before Britain decided it couldn't afford to stay in the Gulf any longer. Starting in 1968, talks began about creating a new federation of Gulf states. And for a long time, the prospects didn't really look good. W without going into all the details, the initial plan was for a union of seven emirates that would also include Bahrain and Qatar, 
until those countries decided they would go their own way. This is a great photograph. It shows Sheikh Zayed in London um, for an official visit and talks in 1969. It was the first time he had been to London as, as ruler. Um, and it was taken at the Trooping of the Colours ceremony on a horse guards parade, which is something that takes place every June uh, to mark the Queen's birthday. And when regiments pass, march past her in dress uniforms and parading their colours, which are the flags they'd have carried uh, into battle in the old days. Uh, Sheikh Zayed was a bit of an unknown quantity uh, for London, certainly in those days, although he was very familiar in Abu Dhabi. Uh, so the uh, British officials in Abu Dhabi provi provided a briefing note for the ministers in London uh, and described uh, Sheikh Zayed this way. He has a commanding presence, which is tempered by a friendly and informal approach. Um, as I said, it was his first official visit as ruler. He had lunch with the Queen and met the Prime Minister, and there were talks about forming a Union army after the creation of the UAE. Uh, what I think this photograph shows above all uh, is that Sheikh Zayed, who holds the centre of the picture, is such a commanding figure, already such a commanding figure on the international stage. Um, then in July 1971, there was a breakthrough. Uh, there was a historic meeting in the desert between Sheikh Zayed and Sheikh Rashid of Dubai, in which they agreed to a binding resolution to create what we now call the UAE, and they would do this by the end of the year, so the end of 1971. Uh, and there's a lot to be done, so much that Sheikh Zayed orders this postponement of celebrations that would, should have taken place that August to mark the fifth anniversary of his becoming ruler of Abu Dhabi. He says, I'm going to quote from him now, there is something more important. There is a decisive matter that relates to our very existence and to our political future, and that is the establishment of the union which compels us all to give all the effort and hard work we can to fulfill the will of the people in this region. So let's jump forward now to Sunday, November 28th. It's a bright, warm day and it's a public holiday. The mood is upbeat and celebratory for the start of uh, celebrations for the fifth anniversary of Sheikh Zayed becoming ruler of Abu Dhabi. So even those working at the highest level to create the new UAE can relax a bit. Uh, with the end of Eid, the British and advisors to the rulers of Abu Dhabi and Dubai have just finished two days of talks, and they've come to an agreement that the creation of the UAE will take place in less than a week, so on December the 2nd. Uh, before we go any further, I'd like to describe the sources of the presentation. The sections are mostly drawn from Al Etihad newspaper, uh, which had been launched the previous year and whose name, The Union, reflected the spirit of what was to come. Uh, some of the language used seems quite flowery by the standards of today. Sheikh Zayed, for example, is routinely described simply as his greatness. The photographs, in contrast, are notable for their informality. They were taken by Bruno Barbie, who was a Moroccan-born French photographer, and he worked as a photojournalist on five continents. Uh, he was part of the famous Magnum uh, Photo Cooperative, uh, which is owned by the photographers and is still going today. And in November 1971, he was in Abu Dhabi in Dubai to capture the creation of the Union and the UAE, but also, I think, the spirit of its people. If you, if you look at his work, you'll see he's very much a street photographer, uh, and intimacy with his subjects is very much part of his distinctive style. And this is what makes his photos of subjects like shakes and palaces, and places like palaces, so remarkable. Um, Bruno died last year uh, in November. 
This is the scene on the morning of November 28th. It's also the last time that the flag of Abu Dhabi, the red uh, with a white square, was used on state occasions because in a few days, uh, the flag of the UAE will take its place. The celebrations caught up all age and all nationalities. This Barbie photo is of a young boy who, from his clothing, is probably of Pakistani origin, and he's grinning broadly uh, with an enormous Abu Dhabi flag tied to his bicycle, so I'm not quite sure how he can ride it. Uh, and if you look, you can see the, in, in the backdrop uh, the original Grand Mosque um, in the back on the right-hand side, and that's uh, just opposite where the almost opposite now where the cultural center is. So I'm guessing that he's standing in the middle of Hamdan Street. And here we have uh, a very cheerful group of young girls, all with their Abu Dhabi flags, um, uh, waving them on the route of the parade that day, which would come down the Corniche. Uh, the Corniche then was still very much under construction. It had been started only a few years earlier, but it was the main source of parades for National Day celebrations. The parade also had a very strong military element uh, in those days. This is the Abu Dhabi Defence Force with their armoured cars. The Abu Dhabi Defence Force was formed in 1965 under Sheikh Shakbut, uh, the previous ruler to Sheikh Zayed, uh, and it had a British commander called Tug Wilson, and most of the soldiers were Jordanian. Um, I'm not a military expert, but I've looked it up, and these seem to be uh, Saladin-like tanks uh, behind a ferret armoured car, um, which are very appropriate names for desert work. They're British-made, fast, and designed to operate in hot weather, uh, but this is basically all Abu Dhabi has to defend itself uh, at that time. And this wonderful photograph, a marching uh, bagpipe band, uh, behind that magnificent moustache actually is a British officer, Colonel Bart Bartholomew, formerly of the Trucial Omen Scouts, but now serving in the Abu Dhabi Defence Force. Uh, the Trucial Omen Scouts, by the way, were a paramilitary force raised in 1951, uh, to maintain law and order inside the Trucial States. They were formed mostly of British officers, although they weren't part of the British Army, and soldiers who were Arab. Uh, they were disbanded shortly after this photograph with the formation of the UAE, uh, and they became part of the Union Defence Force. Um, you'll see they're playing bagpipes, uh, which are often associated with Scotland, but actually um, most people think they have their origin in the Middle East and Persia, and that they may have come to Europe and... Scotland from Turkey and Greece. But then they were reintroduced when the British arrived in the, uh, in the 19th and 20th century, bringing with them Scottish regiments. And of course, a lot of Gulf rulers also did their military training in the UK. So they became very popular and still are very popular. Um, uh, I've also read that bagpipes are particularly suited to Arab music scales. Uh, I have no idea if that's true, but uh, that would also explain why they're so popular. Um, as they marched along the Corniche, there was a temporary stand, a temporary stand for the VIPs, uh, the members of the ruling family. And here we see Sheikh Zayed lifting a hand uh, to salute as the soldiers pass, and a much younger Sheikh Khalifa, then Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, but of course now President of the UAE, standing by his side. Um, the Corniche, as I said, was very much the focal point for uh, UAE National Day. And the first time I went, which was in 2008, uh, it was. Uh, something to see. There was people on horses, cars doing handbrake turns, cars so um, heavily decorated you actually couldn't work out how the driver could see through the window. Um, and I think 
in recent years, there have been attempts to move the Corniche to different locations to relieve the pressure on the Corniche. But I think the Corniche is always the spiritual home of National Day, or it will be for me. Um, here we have another photograph of Sheikh Khalifa. Uh, he's wearing the, Ab the union of, sorry, he's wearing the uniform of the Abu Dhabi Defence Force. Uh, he'd been head of that since 1969 uh, and would become the, the Minister of Defence in, in the new UAE government. Um, from uh, Al Etihad, we learn that Sheikh Zayed went straight from the parade to Al Manhal Palace for a 10 a.m. ceremony, I quote, where songs will be performed and poems will be chanted in his honor. Uh, falcons and falconers were always prominent uh, at these occasions. Uh, and uh, you can, uh, of course, Sheikh Zayed um, was very keen on falcons and uh, passionate about hunting. Uh, Al Manhal Palace, Palace, which you can see in the background here, or the entrance to, um, had replaced Castle Hassan by then as the, the main administrative center for Abu Dhabi. Uh, and Castle Hassan was then the, used by the National Archives mostly. Um, and now we can see here's one of the poets in action. Um, our translator at the time thought from the text, which is quite hard to see, that this was in the Nabati style, which is a Gulf Arab Bedouin style of vernacular poetry that goes back apparently at least hundred year, at least eight hundred years. Uh, and because most people couldn't read or write in those days, it, it would have been recited from memory. Most Nabati poets would possibly remember hundreds of poets poems. Um, it's also, according to our translator, really difficult to translate into English. Um, if you've ever seen Millions Poet, Millions Poet, or if you've heard of Millions Poet, the competition uh, on UATV, that's for Nabati poetry. And then the banquet, um, um, which it is said uh, in Elisi had, his greatness, the state ruler, will throw a lunch in honor of the guests and the delegations who will come before him. Um, there's always an enormous amount of food at these banquets, and uh, I think a hierarchy so that the uh, the VIPs would eat first of all, and then um, others would come in when they'd finished, uh, working their way all the way down to you know the servants and things like that. Um, and when I say a huge amount of food, you can see just how much food. Um, here's Sheikh Zayed at lunch with one of his sons. I think it might be Sheikh Hamdan, who would have been about nine o'clock, nine at the time. And that looks like Sheikh Rashid uh, sitting on the other side. And then after that, 4.30, they went to the races. Uh, with Sheikh Rashid, there were camel races and horse races uh, at that time. And these events would be watched by hundreds of people, uh, including this group here. These guys are amazing. Um, uh, I really would like to know where they came from. I've tried very hard to identify the hats. Um, so if anyone has any ideas as to where they, where they might have come from, I, I'd love to hear them. Uh, over the next two days, so that's November the 28th and 29th, Sheikh Zayed carried out a number of official duties, uh, which included an arts festival and inaugurating the long-awaited Abu Dhabi to Dubai Road, which is now the E11. And I can't remember how many lanes it is now because they widened it but it's at least uh, five or six lanes, I think, each way. Uh, but the uh, before then was just tracks in the sand. So if you were driving between Abu Dhabi and Dubai, you would follow the tracks left by the previous vehicles and hope you didn't break down or get lost. Um, the first road, when they finally made the road, was just a single track 
uh, a single tarmac strip in each direction, and I think was notorious for some pretty appalling accidents, but was almost immediately widened um, uh, and has been widened ever since. Uh, Sheikh Zayed also laid the foundation stone for what is now the Abu Dhabi Media Company, uh, began construction of the breakwater, which would eventually become that area that includes the Marina Mall. And he visited the site of the uh, new of the, a new Hilton ho- Hotel, um, which is still, the building is still there. It's no longer a Hilton. Um, so very busy time. But actually what is at the back of everybody's mind is uh, this. It's Um Kultum, the star of the East, the greatest voice in the Arab world, and even Bob Dylan apparently is a fan and Bono, uh, and she's coming to Abu Dhabi. And this was a huge event, not least because she'd not been in good health and had cancelled all her other appearances that year. Um, But a delegation from Abu Dhabi had gone to Cairo to persuade her. Uh, And as Al-Itihad put it, a grand artistic dream is materialising these days. The lady of Arabic song will share the festivities the people of Abu Dhabi on Ascension Day. And she did. She flew into, uh, into Abu Dhabi at the, uh, in, the International Airport, which is al Airport now, with a huge entourage. She didn't travel light, uh, including her family and friends, I think um, that's her daughter with her, um, and her orchestra. Uh, she was offered a private villa to stay in, but she said apparently no, no, she wanted to stay with her orchestra who had been put up at the Alain Palace Hotel. There would be two concerts in a specially built concert hall uh, that had been literally constructed in a matter of, of months. Uh, and as far as we can work out, that's uh, on the site of what is now Al Nayan Station Stadium, which is the football stadium right behind Al Wadamal in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and the first concert began at 10.30 in the evening of November 28th, and it was attended by Sheikh Zayed and all the other de- uh, VIPs, and you can see her here in full song, uh, in a magnificent dress and earrings. Um, if you're not familiar with Uncultoon, she was born sometime around the end of the 19th or the beginning of the 20th century. There's some discussion about this, uh, so her like her age is not entirely clear. Um, uh, it was uh, she was born in a village on the Nile Delta. Her father was an imam, uh, and she even from a young age she became famous for her voice. Uh, she became really famous first in the 1920s, and from 1934, she would perform live on Egyptian radio for pretty much the rest of her life, 40 years. Uh, her fame and the unique quality of her voice spread across the Arab world. She was a very strong uh, supporter of Arab nationalism and also a very strong supporter of President Nasser. It was said that he would make his speeches, make sure his speeches never clashed with her concerts. Uh, her songs, by today's standards, uh, were very long. They'd often last up to an hour where she would sing for a while and then the orchestra would take up the theme and then she'd come back in. Um, They have almost an operatic quality, um, if you ever see them. Uh, And as I said, the songs are very long and she would only give maybe two or three uh, for each performance. By the time she came to Abu Dhabi, she was nearing the end of her career. Uh, She died in early 1975 and it's estimated that four million people uh, lined the route of her funeral in Cairo. Uh, two days later, she was received by Sheikh Zayed in his palace. And it's possible that uh, here he presented her with this fabulous pearl necklace as a thank you. Uh, you can see the necklace just on the right-hand side. 
uh, it's a style of necklace known as setlada, uh, and it was made in uh, India, probably in a workshop in Mumbai around 1880. And there are nearly 2,000 pearls in nine strands, and it includes golden enamel pendants, and they have trios of tiny seed pearls. So the whole thing is really spectacular and a tremendous gift. Um, the, the necklace remained in her family until after her death, and then it was sold at auction uh, by Christie's in 2008 for over a million dollars, and the buyer was reportedly from Abu Dhabi, but it was never revealed, except uh, it disappeared, uh, but then suddenly reappeared uh, as part of the collection of Louvre Abu Dhabi in 2019. And if you want to see it, you can go there, and it's as far as I know, it's still on display, and it's a, a truly astonishing piece and part of the UA's history. Uncle Toon's second and final concert was on November the 30th, uh, and it was described as a fundraiser for Arab military efforts. He was a great supporter of the Arab military and the uh, Egyptian armed forces. Both concerts were absolutely packed, and there are reports of people sitting on the floor uh, and the reception that was described as ecstatic. Um, I'm going to play you in a second a short clip from that second concert. Uh, you can actually see a much longer version of it on the Nationals. YouTube channel if you search for it. Um, this is some, uh, it's the final moments and you see the uh, cutting away to the audience and the audience reaction and them rising to applause. You'll notice the two guys struggling to close the curtains by hand. And also, if you look carefully at the stage backdrop, you'll just see the Arabic letter five uh, representing the fifth anniversary of Sheikh Zayed. So let's just play that for a bit. But before we leave the anniversary celebrations, I want to go back to that banquet uh, two days ago and to this shot of Sheikh Zayed taken by Barbie. Uh, he has a cup of tea, but you can see his mind is very much on what's to come and the challenges that are ahead and with good reason. Um, so it's now the night of uh, November the 30th uh, and one of the great worries about plans for independence in the Gulf were the claims made by Iran over various territories. The British had negotiated successfully to persuade Tehran to abandon its claim to Bahrain, and Sharjah believed it had a power agreement. Uh, sorry, Sharjah believed it had agreed a power-sharing deal over the island of Abu Musa. Uh, the Greater and Lesser Tums, islands that were part of Ras al Khaimah and also claimed by Iran, were unresolved, and that was complicated because at that point Ras al Khaimah, which ruled them, was not part of the UAE would not join until February the following year. Uh, overnight, on uh, November the 30th, Iranian forces arrive in Abu Musa and invade the Tums. Uh, on the Tums, the local police put up a brave fight, but they're quickly overwhelmed. 
The local population are expelled and deposited on a beach in Ras al-Khaimah, frightened and exhausted. One of them described to journalists what happened. We saw lights and planes and those things that move on the ground. We hadn't even seen a car before. The invasion sets off a furious reaction across the Emirates. This photograph uh, from the, uh, one of the newspapers at the time uh, shows one of the protests. And we read that uh, Iranian assets like banks are attacked. And one newspaper report says that police had to use tear gas to disperse demonstrators on several occasions. And even in another, that uh, eight Iranians were killed by an angry mob in Ras al-Khaimah. So this then was the background to December the 2nd, the formation of the UAE. Uh, on the evening of December 1, December the 1st, it's thought Sheikh Zayed left Abu Dhabi driving his familiar white uh, Mercedes, which had those desert tires, across the sand tracks uh, to camp overnight near the border with Dubai at Samia. Uh, in Dubai, everything was ready for the ceremony at Sheikh Rashid's Majlis, what's today is the Union House Museum, uh, which you can visit, of course. Tensions were still running high, and as a precaution, Dubai police closed the only bridge over the creek because they were worried there would be protests from people still angry about the Iranian invasion. Um, but we know that the moment of union uh, passed without incident at 11 a.m., although apparently it was a little chaotic with dozens of people crammed into Union House. Uh, and we can see here uh, the scene uh, with Britain, the British envoy, uh, announcing a new treaty of free, uh, new treaty of friendship to replace the old crucial state treaties. And he's watched by uh, Sheikh uh, Zayed and Sheikh Rashid and the other rulers. Um, that curved table is still there. I think if you go to Union House, uh, and the it, apparently it was so um, crammed with journalists and onlookers that the British commented after that the only way they could uh, get out of the building was to climb out the window. Uh, not so for Sheikh Zayed. Um, he had been uh, elected by the other leaders as president of the UAE, and here we see him full of confidence, striding down the steps of Union House uh, for the raising of the flag at 11, exactly 11.30. And at that point, the United Arab Emirates has become a country. And then, of course, there's this famous photograph by Ramesh Shukla, um, who was working uh, following Sheikh Rashid mostly in those days, outside Union House with the flag raising. Um, you can see five rulers, actually not uh, six, because the Crown Prince of Amadam, uh, Umar Qaim, his father was unwell, uh, attended. Uh, so um, he took his place under the flag. Back in Abu Dhabi, there was a similar ceremony at Al Malhal Palace. Uh, this is the page from al Ittihad newspaper, the actual page that shows the ceremony. Uh, it's, it's all that survives, uh, unfortunately, as far as we can tell, of that issue of al Ittihad. Um, when we went to look for it, uh, someone had removed the front page from the archives. Um, but uh, if we look at the photograph close up, uh, you can see, if you have a military background, you might wonder why everyone's saluting with their left hands. And the answer is that the newspaper actually printed the photograph in reverse. And here's the correct version. 
Uh, and you can see in the middle uh, Sheikh Khalifa and Umm Kutum, who'd stayed on uh, for the ceremony. And also in there is uh, Mohammed Al-Fahim, uh, the businessman and well-known for the author of From Rags to Riches. He's also in that group. That marks the end of those momentous five days. Uh, what happened next? On December 9th, the General Assembly of the United Nations voted to admit the UAE as its newest member with an address by Ahmed al-Suwaidi, uh, who was one of Sheikh Zayed's closest advisors, and he's now the UAE's first foreign minister. And then the next day at noon in New York, the UAE flag was raised in a ceremony at the UN Plaza. This time watched by Adnan Pachachi, uh, who I think died uh, about two years ago, Another close advisor to Sheikh Zayed, and he had officially presented the U.S. case UN membership just three days earlier. And here we see the flag actually flying uh, for the first time above the U.N. Uh, there were some back in 1971 who doubted the future of the UAE, that the agreement that bound the seven Emirates together would fall apart, that hostile foreign powers would overwhelm the new country, uh, before it could properly defend itself. As we can see, uh, 50 years later, they were wrong. And the UAE is very much with us and very much thriving. Uh, thank you for your time and, and listening to me. Um, I hope you enjoyed this presentation and um, I hope there's plenty of time for questions, uh, observations, even corrections. Uh, and I look forward to hearing you, hearing them. Thank you, James, for that um, fascinating talk and description of the pictures. Uh, it was truly insightful. Like uh, I, as an Emirati, uh, didn't know a lot about the process of forming the UAE and or like what happened on that day. So this was very illuminating. And I know that the audience has many curiosities about what you've spoken about. Um, so now we will open up the floor to the audience to submit their questions through the chat. Uh, Noor, if you'd like, you can start us off. Yes, um, that was very fascinating, James. It's very interesting to see the intersection between the histories of the consolidation of an entire state and personalities like Um Kalthum. So um, my first question is, you've shown us a number of these brilliant images um, and rare photographs in your talk. So why do you think photography is an important medium to convey the histories of nations like the UAE? I think you're muted, um, I, okay. I don't know who muted me. I think it was you. Um, well, I think particularly with the with the, the Bruno Barbic photos, they actually take us there. Um, and I think we, we should be very grateful that, that Bruno Barbie was there because, you know, as I said, his photographs have a sort of intimacy to them. You know, that, that photograph of Sheikh Zayed, just kind of you can see he's lost in thought. Um, uh, you, you're, you, it suddenly, it doesn't become a dusty page from a history book it becomes something that you can live a bit. And, uh, you know, I was still quite young when the UAE was formed. Most people in the UAE today, they might hear about it from their parents, but it's not something they remember. Um, and it can seem a bit remote. Uh, but when you see photographs, uh, you, um, you, you really live it much more than you, you know, you really live it, you really experience it. Um, even that, that, uh, that, 
black and white footage of Uncle Toom singing and the, everyone at the end rising and applauding. And, you know, you can feel the, the thrill and the joy of it. Um, and, you know, you're kind of there. Uh, and it's great that these photos are there and accessible. We had to really search long and hard for them 10 years ago, partly because they hadn't been digitalized. Um, and then when they had been digitalized, they hadn't been tagged properly. And so more and more emerge over time. That's only a small selection of the Bruno Barbie photos. There's many more. And I think there's been exhibitions of his work in the past. But all the others as well, you know, you, you, you are, it's, for me, it's a great way of taking you right there. Rather than reading about something in the past, you're kind of there on the spot seeing it. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. You feel like you're living in the photo. Um, could you tell us more about the process of actually retrieving or collecting these images? Because some of them don't seem to be as um, prevalent in, in in history books, like you said. So how was the process of actually okay. finding the images? Well, we had a, a, a great uh, picture editor called Karen Davis, um, who was really dug deep. Um, and you know, but once we got these photos, they were often very badly captioned, you know, for, by people who didn't even know how to spell Abu Dhabi properly. You'd find a photograph and you think, yeah. So like the photographs of Bruno Mbappé photographs, we knew that they were from 1971. We knew they were from round about December 1st. We had no idea what they were because the caption didn't say. So then we had Al-Itihad archives um, because in those days the National was in the same building as Al-Itihad. Uh, And then we were trying to work out what they showed. And even at one point, we were looking at the wallpaper uh, on the ones of Al-Manhal Palace. And we had photographs of Al-Manhal Palace. And we were comparing the wallpaper in the backdrop of the photographs and, uh, and matching them up together. We had, we, had a, we had a meeting room that we converted for the project. And it's a bit like one of those, uh, I don't know, those detective um, uh, TV shows where they have a wall Uh, and they put photos on the wall and, and, and then they try and connect them all up. And we were doing that and saying, well, okay, so that is Al-Malham Palace, but it seems to be, oh, it's the fifth anniversary. These are, we initially thought those photographs were of celebrations for the formation of the UAE. And then we realized that they were for the fifth anniversary of Sheikh Zayed. So, well, hang on a minute, that should have been in August. So then we started to get the papers translated um, and worked out that he'd actually postponed the celebrations from August to November. And we also tracked down a lot of people uh, who had memories of that time. And someone went to, to Cairo uh, to do a bit of research. And I went to London to spend a couple of days digging away in the archives of the, of the, of the British Library and uh, the National Archives in Britain. So it really was, it was a, it was a, it was a piece of detection. Um, so we learned an awful lot by doing it. It was a really great um, way, of, way of actually learning. Um, there's more and more uh, information coming out and more and more photographs coming out. And it'd be interesting to see how much more is available when people start uh, creating projects for the 50th. Um, thank you. Uh, on the same uh, lines, James, um, About the documentation of history, having worked in the UAE for some time now, how have you seen um, the documentation of the history um, of this region progress or change in any way? Uh, I think, well, there's, the, the, there's two great archives now that are available for anyone to use online, and it would have been wonderful to have had them then. 
Um, there's the uh, there's the uh, British Library archive, which is done with the Qatar Foundation, which took a lot of the records that had been stored in India because the UAE was part of the British Empire. All the records for the what were then called the Trucial States were all held in India as part of the British Empire in India, and they are being digitalized, and you can search them. The, the, the really wonderful one is the one that's set up by the uh, National Archives here, uh, and it's called the uh, Arabian Gulf Digital Archive. And again, it's online. You can search it. You can look at the original documents. You can look at photographs. You, look at, you can look at translations. If anyone wants to do any research or look at it, um, that's a really great, uh, great, great asset to the UAE. Uh, and then there are all sorts of books you can you can look for. Um, there's one called Mother Without a Mask, which I would recommend if for, for people who are English language speakers. Uh, and then there's one another one called Before the Oil, uh, which tells the story of 1950s through the eyes of a, uh, a British woman called Susan Hilliard. Uh, that's in English and in Arabic. And the National Archives itself has uh, a number of publications. Uh, there's one I think actually devoted to the Um Kultum concerts in Abu Dhabi. So um, there's some great starting points out there. Uh, and of course, if you're Emirati, um, you know, ask your mom or dad, ask your grandparents, ask your aunts and uncles. They they have some great stories and they really should be captured now as, as people are getting older. You know, this is 50 years ago. That means that somebody who was 20 in 1971 is now 71, you know, and these, I hope people are capturing these memories. Uh, just the you know the, the regular people of what it was like in those days uh, before it's before it's too soon, too late. Yes, of course, and and we've gotten some questions also about um, where people can access these sorts of images. So these resources that you've mentioned are perfect places to go. Um, and we have a very interesting question here um, by Esma. She says the lead up to the formation of the UAE is often shared. Um, in a rosy lens in the curriculum and history books, you have shown us one rendition that is full of struggles, warts and all. Why is it important to show the struggles as well as the successes? I think only if you understand the struggles and, and the challenges, that's only really then you can understand just what was achieved. I mean, you know, um, leaders like Sheikh Zayed and Sheikh Rashid did not give up. Uh, and, you know, there were some, some difficult times. It was not easy. Um, people, as I said at the end, people, outsiders thought the UAE would fail. They thought, you know, this is a, this is a small country uh, for, you know, for years it's been defended by British fighter jets in, the, in Sharjah. There was an RAF base in Sharjah by British warships in the Gulf. By, you know, they knew that if you attacked uh, any of the trucial states, then Britain was obliged to come to their defence. And then suddenly that was gone. And that's why the Iranians invaded on the, the evening of the 30th because they knew that with one day left to go of the old treaties, the British weren't going to suddenly go to war to defend the UAE. So it was a calculation. Uh, but it's not just, it's you know, the negotiations that went on and on and on. And in the end, you know, everyone had their own point of view. Everyone saw the, the, the Federation differently. Russell Kamer thought that it could, for a while, thought that it had enough resources to become an independent country on its own. So the whole thing was constantly on the verge of not working at all. Uh, and just other complications, like the borders. There were no agreed, properly agreed borders there uh, because it was you know, mostly based on tribal allegiances. So someone had to go around 
all the Emirates and say, this agree the borders. So it's, you know, it's, it's remarkable that it happened at all. Um, and it, it really took a huge effort. And the, the great breakthrough was, was when, when Zayed and Rashid sort of set aside any differences they might have and said, we're going to make this work. We're going to make this work. We're going to form a country, all the seven Emirates. We're going to call it the UAE, and it's going to happen. Um, and they are rightly celebrated for this. You know, I mean, they are the heroes of this story. And uh, without the struggle, it would have been, you know, it wouldn't be quite so heroic, I don't think. Um, thank you, James. Uh, someone is asking if you can briefly mention how uh, the Abu Musa incident was resolved, or is it like still? Well, as you know, so it's it's a very complicated story, and uh, and feelings still run very high. Um, so, Abu Musa, uh, you're talking about Abu Musa rather than, than the Tuns, or both of them. So, Abu, Abu Musa was uh, part of Sharjah, claimed by Iran. Uh, it was particularly attractive because it had uh, an offshore oil field that everybody wanted a bit of. Uh, and there was a lot of complicated negotiations between. Uh, Sharjah and Iran with the British involved. Uh, and in the end, the proposal was that uh, the Iranians would be allowed to have a police force on the island, I think, and that they would be able to share, if, if oil and gas were discovered, the money from that, the sale of that, would be shared between the two. But actually what happened effectively is that and it's only just, it's, you know, it's closer to Iran than it is to the UAE. What happened is that the Iranians went in there in force and effectively, although there was supposedly a power-sharing agreement, they effectively took control of the island. Um, it's different from the Tums, which was a, a full-scale invasion with violence and uh, casualties. Um, you know, the, the, first, uh, the first person to die defending the UAE was a policeman from Asal Khaimah. Um, so, uh, and it's not resolved. The, the UAE still claims uh, the territories. Uh, Iran denies that. Uh, it's one of those long-standing international stalemates uh, that has lasted for 50 years now. Yeah, I believe the, the name of the first... Uh, policeman, I think, uh, or the first martyrs, Salim Sahil bin Khamis, um, in in That's that right. in that dispute. Um, it's, it's also the first name on the uh, Wadat al Karama, the memorial, I think, down by Sheikh Zayed Mosque. Yeah, um, and they were they were. It was a really sort of heroic last stand. I think they were they were overwhelmed uh, by vastly superior. They were just policemen, you know, um, but they 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 did the best. Exactly. Um, we have a question here about the, the general perception of the public to the unification. How did the people um, see the, the unification or the union at the time? Um, I'm not sure I'm qualified to say that, um, except that I think people were very excited. Uh, there was quite a substantial uh, non-Emirati population by then. And, and I know that they, it was a, a big thing for them as well. Um, uh, you know, there was tremendous patriotism as well and, and love of, of the country. 
I think in those days people still thought of themselves very much as belonging to a particular emirate, and uh, there was still a border between Abu Dhabi and Dubai for a while after December the 1st. I think if you were going from uh, Abu Dhabi to Dubai, you would stop at the border. Um, and that, that all gradually, the, the process of integration really began on December the 1st. So you moved to a currency. Uh, a lot of the Emirates had individual defense forces there brought together. So it's a process of building a national identity then begins on December the 1st, uh, I think. Um, and the flag and the, the national anthem and all these things, you begin the, the process of building a national identity as well as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, an identity rooted to maybe your tribe, your family, your emirate. Um, uh, I think people were, were, particularly those who are working with the Sheikh Zayed, were very excited and very positive. You know, they, they believed they could make it happen no matter what anybody said. They were called, the Zayed Zayed were called by the British, they called them the young men in a hurry. Um, they were young men, and they weren't going to take no for an answer, and they didn't stop till they achieved what they were, what they were aiming to set out for. Thank you, James. Um, I think uh, we have a lot of uh, censorship in the UAE and suppression. So someone was asking um, if there were any of the photos that were taken during that period that were censored or destroyed or lost. Uh, well, obviously, I don't know if they were destroyed or lost because uh, we didn't we didn't have them. Um, but um, uh, we were not when we were when we were producing the publication. No one brought us a photograph and said, "But you can't use that." Um, I think um, if there were sensitivities, sometimes the British officials were a bit rude, uh, so we uh, we didn't necessarily. You know, they could be a bit sort of. Um, superior uh, about uh, local people. So we, we, we try to be respectful. Um, in terms of censorship, I'm not, uh, I'm not aware of, we, we did, we weren't, we, we were, we, we very carefully reviewed what we wrote, not least because we wanted to be accurate. Um, um, I think, I would say this, that these are very recent events, and most countries have uh, documents, letters, reports that are regarded as sensitive uh, for a number of years. And I don't think the UAE is any different to that. Uh, so I think they, you know, there are there are aspects of the UAE's history that that aren't perhaps openly discussed. Uh, that that maybe in the future I can you know I can list them. But I'm not sure. If you want me to or not, but um, you know, there are certain areas I think that we that are still to be opened up. Um, does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Anur, uh, would you like to go? Yeah, we we have some very interesting questions on. Keep um, coming. On yeah, some the journalistic investigation side of 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 this so one question reads it seems that it was almost a journalistic investigation to recap the days leading up to the formation of the uae granted the country or um was not formally united at the time but enough time has passed for historians to have had documented this journey and the days leading up to it so the question is did you encounter people that can serve as custodians for this history 
Do you think there's a gap there for such people in the UAE? Yes, we did. I mean, uh, it was, I mean, we weren't academic, so we didn't go at it like uh, maybe an academic would. We were basically trying to find people who would talk to us and as well as photographs. Um, so we did, we did find some people. We found um, uh, 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 the guy who built uh, the Umkultum concert hall. Uh, and we found uh, one of uh, uh, someone who's very close to Sheikh Zayed, who was able to tell us about how he set off for Dubai on the night of the uh, of the first. You know, so we, that's how we found out that he that he drove that evening in his white Mercedes out into the desert. And I think he just wanted a bit of you can imagine he just wanted to get his head clear. He was observing very much of the desert, and you can imagine that. That after all these sitting around in banquets and all these concerts and all the noise, you just wanted to get out into the desert for that last time before the next day. Um, so, yeah, these witnesses are, are really important. And um, I, I've already said this, they should, people should be trying to capture them now. And it's, you know, if you're an Emirati, it's your story and it's there. You know, I, I, maybe you have in your own family, you have people who have memories. You know, just it, it's, uh, it's what brings it to life as well. Exactly. And I think I'm sure um, as your search progressed, you found that these photographs or uh, that portrayed the history of you, you're closely linked to these personal histories. Um, so do you feel in any way that, um, uh, that your search is, is related to your personal history as well? I mean, you're not an Imanati, but do you feel that, that, do you have found a personal connection um, or that these photos relate to your own history, personal history? I, I felt, well, it certainly gave me, a, and all of us as well, I speak for everyone who was involved, it gave us a sense of connection with uh, a country that, you know, we, we, we had come to almost as a sort of not quite a business arrangement. You know what I mean? We've been hired to do a job. Um, so we didn't come with any kind of um, connection other than that. Uh, and I think at the end of it, you know, it, it, it gave us a great affection for the place and a great respect for the story as well. Um, that's one of the reasons why we did it. We did other, we did um, a couple of other magazines, as well, more than a couple actually. We we did one um, for a number of years, um, and I hope we'll be doing more on the national for the fiftieth. But it's it's the the. the the regret, in a way, is that so much of the uh, story of the UAE is told by outsiders. That's the danger. So, for example, the photographs, Bruno Barbie was in Abu Dhabi. He'd been sent there to do a job. Um, and those days, people didn't have many cameras. So, you know, there's, it's, it's, there's not an obvious... There was, there was Gulf News. There was Al Etihad for, from 1970. So there was, you know, the material initially was quite external. You know, you're looking at papers, reports. The biggest problem was reports produced by British officials about how they were interpreting what Sheikh Zayed and Sheikh Rashid were doing rather than it from the inside. And we were able to crack that open a bit. I think there's much more work to be done on that um, and not just depending on what some... Uh, white British guy from a you know has been to a private school and comes over here and and, and thinks the thinks what's in Shakespeare's mind. 
Um, they weren't all like that, but you do see in the British reports things they can be quite superior. Um, so I think the more one tells a story from within is, you know, is the thing to do. Exactly. And, and just a follow-up question on your previous answer, but um, it's interesting that you had to find witnesses. So how can oral history be captured as evidence and used formally? And I think this is a question that's very relevant to the UAE because so much of our history is transmitted orally. So um, how can that be used as reliable sources? Uh, re well, reliable. I mean, the, the, the history is a, is a combination of everybody's different interpretation of it, isn't it? I mean, you know, that's, I'm not sure there's any one source that's reliable, uh, but you can come at it from different viewpoints. Um, in terms of um, how you record it, well, you've got a phone with a recorder on it and the camera. You know, I mean, it's very easy for me. Don't forget when we did this 10 years ago, there were not smartphones. It was a big deal to kind of track someone down. If you found someone with something to stay, say, say, okay, can you wait there? Can we come back in two days with a, you know, with a, with a video camera? And um, you have the opportunity now um, as young Emiratis, if you're interested, to just sit down with older relatives and just say, you know, can you talk to me about it? Um, I'd, I'd, I'm interested to know how much work is being done, you know, I mean, your family. Um, do you, have you talked to them about the old days? I mean, it's we're very lucky that the old days for us is not too old. So yeah, well, that's the point. Yeah, um, but um, they get older, um, and um, you know, um, I think there's also an appreciation now that this is a story worth telling. Now, it is actually. Um, that was one of the things we said when, 10 years ago when we were doing the original project, that people were saying, is this really history? This is, this is, this is you know, we did this at school. We used to have a, you know, we used to do a play every year for National Day. This isn't, history is like big stuff, you know, you read about in, in books and everything. And we said, no, actually, this is, this is history. This is your history. And the fact that it's only 30, 40, 50 years ago doesn't make it any less history. Exactly. And I think once once we realize that it's very empowering, it's a very empowering tool to consider um, to consider this as history and not just um, talk from your grandparents. Uh, no, yeah, well, imagine, imagine how important it will be in 100 years time. Imagine if you could go back like 100 years and talk to people who are around then, how amazing that would be. Well, you know, now and the great thing now is it's it's so accessible. You know, you can record it, you can share it if you want to, uh, you can digitalize it, um, and it's, you can reach a much wider audience. That's what's changed a lot, even in 10 years. It's just remarkable how much is accessible. Well, NYU 10 years ago was not really there. Um, this, these talks that you do, you know, they're all part of the process. Thank you, James. Um, just going back to what you said earlier, I think um, outsiders have contributed a lot to the history of the UAE. So most locals who built um, the country were actually outsiders like Persians, Yemenis, um, and Yemenis who were given like the citizenship. Um, and then they were all like placed under this one homogenous uh, national identity. 
uh, which I find very interesting. But uh, someone asked, um, the story as it is told, at least officially, is an almost entirely male story revolving around the consolidation um, of male tribal patriarchal power. Uh, what did what role did women play in this? Uh, the pictures suggest they dressed in a far wider range of styles than today. Uh, again, I'm not sure if I'm qualified to speak for for women from that era. Um, you noticed in the Uncle Tomb uh, clip there wasn't a single woman to be seen, nor in any of the banquets. Uh, that doesn't mean that women haven't played a historically important role as influencers. Um, you know, I mean, Sheikha Salama, who was Sheikh Zayed's mother, Sheikha Fatima are obviously very powerful figures. Uh, and culturally, they remain in the background, but it doesn't mean that, that within, uh, within the, you know, the, the voices weren't heard within the families. Uh, in terms, I mean, it, 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 certainly, it's not, the UAE is not unique in that in those days. If you went back 50 years to Europe, you wouldn't see uh, as many women in public life as you do now. And I think you've seen in the UAE a transformation of the role of women in, in public life. And uh, there's quite a lot of women talking to me today, I think. So it, it has improved. Uh, in terms of their, I mean, in terms of the actual sort of nuts and bolts of negotiating and things like that, no, they're, they're not present. They don't have a, they don't have a direct voice. Um, is that what is that what you're asking? Is that yes? What's your perspective? What's your perspective? Um, and Noor, would you like to offer your insight? For sure. So, I mean. Women have played a very salient role in our histories. I think um, not just socially, but we, we often forget that economically, um, women have played a very large role um, before the unification and even during. Um, so uh, whether the, the photos portray that or not, I think um, their, their role is definitely um, significant. Um, I think we're, we're almost running out of time. Um, so if, uh, Nora, if you have any final questions. Oh, one of the, some, a fun question from the chat. James, have you yeah. visited the UAE Pavilion at Expo? I have. I was at Expo two weeks ago and it's really hot right now at Expo. I would say if you're going to go to Expo, maybe go, uh, the end of the month or next month, but it's great. I've been to the UAE Pavilion, which is this amazing structure with these like feathers that are actually um, solar panels that open and close, uh, and uh, some uh, and re real sand dunes inside as well. Uh, have you been there yet? Yes, have I've been, and it, it's incredible, very incredible. Yeah. There's some great pavilions there. I mean, they all are, and uh, the Saudi Pavilion is amazing. Um, as well, um, but also uh, if, you know some of the smaller countries that are there. There's some there's some really interesting stories. To tell us too. Who would have imagined 50 years ago that, that something like that would be in the UAE? Exactly. All right, James. Thank you so much for coming no, and joining it's great us. Pleasure. I I, um, I hope it was okay. I hope you all learned something. I always learn something about these events. Definitely, definitely. 
Thank you so much for, for your insightful presentation and thank you to the audience for tuning in. Um, yeah, I wish I could see you all, but um, that's the... Thank, thank you, audience, for being here and sticking with me. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Keep an eye out for the upcoming Institute Talks, um, part of the UAE 50th anniversary, and hopefully everything will be uploaded on YouTube soon, the recording of this talk. Thank you again, James. Thank you, Nora. Um, and I'd like to thank the Institute also for organizing this. Goodbye, everyone. Have a good night. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.